Now, it's good to be here again. I haven't, like I said, four, uh, two years ago, and you guys were meeting outside. Aren't you glad those days are behind us? And uh, I'm trying something new today. I'm doing my notes on iPad. And uh, yeah, pray for me. <laughs> and if I, if I can get everything working... It didn't do this before. I had it working before we, I came up. Maybe it's the sound here. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll go to my notes. <laughs> Just in case, I, I brought these, so... I'll put this over here so I don't, sorry about that. Uh, I was hoping I could, you know, get into the 21st century as an old man, but uh, it's not going to happen today. So, uh, as you heard, my name is Jack Owens. I am married to my wonderful wife, Connie. She's back there. We have four children. And uh, 20 grandchildren. So uh, we used to live in Ames, and we moved down to Lawrence, Kansas uh, four years ago so we could be closer to grandchildren and to help out with a new church plant that Cornerstone was planting down in in Lawrence. And things are going great there. I just praise God. So, Matt invited me up here. You're going through, I understand you're going through the Gospel of Luke. And today, uh, we're in chapter 20. We're going to journey on with what you've been going through. We'll start with verse uh, 19, Luke 20, and we'll go to verse 4 of uh, chapter 21. This narrative takes place during the last week of Jesus before he was crucified. And you learned in chapter 19, it talked about the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And so then started the last week of his life before going to the cross. And Luke said in that last verse of of chapter 19, that every day he was, in the, he was in the temple teaching. And so what we're going to look at today is he's in the temple and he's reacting to some people there. These people are his enemies. In fact, during the three years of his public ministry, he made lots of enemies. And they were afraid of him. They were didn't like what he taught because often he taught things that were contradictory to what they taught. And he criticized them. And, but he was still loving them, trying to reach out to them, trying to help them, healing them, feeding them. Now, I want you to know, whenever I prepare for a message to teach a a message, uh, as I study that, I'm telling you folks, I, I get much more blessed and I learn so many more insights than I could ever communicate to you. 
And it's no different with this. As I prepared these passages, we're going to see Jesus interacting with his enemies. And I, I, I got to thinking, well, those, those people, why are they doing this? Here is the King of kings, it's the Lord of lords, right in front of you. And in John chapter 1, 10 and 11 in his gospel, he said, he was in the world, talking about Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And I, I thought, that's terrible. He came to his own people. He not only came to the world, he came to his own people, the Jews, and they rejected him. And I was thinking, you know, if I had been there, I wouldn't have rejected him. I would have I'd accepted him. But then I began to think, hmm, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I would be right there in those groups. Maybe I'd be one of the ones speaking out against him. In fact, I'm pretty sure I would have been. Because I'm no different than those people. We're no different than those people back in those days. So God had to humble me as I was looking at this to see that, man, I need what we learn about Jesus this morning in this passage. So during the, the three years, as I said, he made these enemies. And this is, this is probably Tuesday or Wednesday of what we call Holy Week today, his last week before the cross. It was also a really important time for the Jews because this was also Passover week. This was a time Jews came in from all over the, the area, the other countries even, to come there to celebrate the Passover, God delivering the Jews from slavery in Egypt so many years before. So lots of people there, lots of outsiders and we're going to see his enemies, two groups of his enemies, sending people to ask him questions. They were trying their best to do things that would cause him to trip up in what he said so that they could get him arrested, so they could stir up the crowd against him. And uh, they were really worried about all the people that were getting, when he came into Jerusalem, this triumphant entry, you know, people were out there saying, yay, Hosanna to the one who comes, the king of kings. And, and these people were just shocked. So let's look at verses. Uh, you, I'll, I'll read. You can follow along. They'll be on the, the screen or you can look in your Bible. Chapter 20, verse, starting with verse 19. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Okay, he had, last week apparently he went through a parable that he told, and this says that the parable were against these religious leaders, but they feared the people. They couldn't touch him. They watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so they could catch him and what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. They questioned him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly 
You don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But detecting their craftiness, he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. Well then, he told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, as we go through this, these scriptures, we need to understand who are the people that Luke is talking about here? Who are these characters in the, the story? And we see scribes mentioned, we see high priests, and we see uh, spies. So who were these? Who, who, what is a scribe? Maybe uh, uh, Pastor Matt, he's already talked about this. If so, this is a review. Okay, the scribes, they were the official teachers of the law. They were the teachers of the Hebrew, the Jewish law. The laws of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. And they would teach that. They were their official teachers, and they would have their own students in schools where they would teach them the law. So they were very important. They also the ones that, that copied scriptures by hand so that we could even have them at this time. So you had the scribes there. They didn't like Jesus because he often spoke out where they were wrong. Then the chief priests. Who were these chief priests? They were priests. They were, the priests were uh, priests by, by, because they're related to Aaron, the brother of Moses. So in order to be a priest, you couldn't just say, hey, I want to be a priest. You had to be a descendant of Aaron. So they were descendants of Aaron. And somehow these chief priests, they had wiggled their way up through the hierarchy, and they became there at the top. They were the head of the priests. And then Luke says they sent spies in to try to trap Jesus. Well, we have parallel, there are parallel copies of this story in Matthew and Mark. And each of them have a little, few different sentences. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 24 that the spies were actually Pharisees that the scribes sent. Now, who were the Pharisees? They were the largest and most important religious organization among the Jews in Israel at that time. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. Now, they didn't like Jesus because he often opposed what they taught and their traditions that they clung to so often. So these Pharisees, these spies, were sent in to catch him in what he said. They thought that they could ask, if they asked him the ingenious enough question, he would say the wrong answer, and then they could get him arrested, or they could stir up the crowd against him. And so they asked him a question that was, uh, they thought it put him on the horns of a dilemma. It was either yes or no answer. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Should we not pay taxes? So... If he had said, yes, you should pay taxes, you owe taxes to Caesar, then they could have whipped up the crowd into a frenzy. And uh, because the, 
the Jews, they hated the Roman Empire. They were oppressive to them. They were ruling them with an iron fist. And they, they did not, they hated the Roman Empire. And a few years after Jesus, they rebel against the Roman Empire to their dismay, and they were totally destroyed. And so it was easy to whip up a crowd against their, their enemy, the Romans. So yes would be a bad answer for Jesus. But on the other hand, if he said no, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, then they could go to Caesar. They could go to Pontius Pilate, the governor, and say, this guy is trying to cause a rebellion, telling people not to pay taxes. So how did Jesus answer? They thought there were only two answers. Actually, Jesus found another answer. So he said, show me a denarius. Now on the screen, here's a kind of a fuzzy view of a, a denarius in Jesus' day. So that head is Caesar, who they're talking about. And actually, this is the coin with which they paid this, this tax. They had to, everyone, it's kind of a poll tax. Everyone had to pay this tax uh, ever so often. I don't know if it was once a year or however often. So he says, whose image and inscriptions does it have? They answered Caesar's. And he says, well, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And I just wonder if he paused then. And they're thinking, ah, and they're getting ready to, to pounce. And he says, and what? And what? Give to God the things that are God's. Now, he affirmed in saying that, that tax money was due to Caesar, while adding that we need to give to God the things that belong to God. Now, his answer said, loyalty to God does not necessarily include disloyalty to the government authorities. Jesus was acknowledging there are two, these two authorities, government and God. Of course, we know that government is delegated from God. And I don't know about you, though, but I am not fond of paying taxes. However, we realize taxes are necessary to the government. And it was the same with the Jews in those days. The Romans, even though they hated them, they did provide a lot of good for them. They, had, they built the roads, the Roman roads that some are still in existence today. Those were good roads. They built aqueducts, bringing in water to cities. They had their military that kept the peace, and there was Pax Romana, which was peace in the, in the empire for a long time, hundreds of years. And these taxes paid for things like that. Now, I have friends in, that live in other countries, countries like Turkey, Egypt, Iran, China, in other places, they all pay taxes. Even though in many, many of those countries, most of those countries, the, the, the government is corrupt, totally corrupt and evil, they pay their taxes. 
and they're Christians. You know, I am, I'm really thankful for, um, when I drove up here, I drove up from, from uh, Kansas, I drove on I-35. I like I-35. It's so nice. I've, I've driven that before I-35 was there. It was a two-lane Highway 69. We're not safe. I like being able to drive over here from Ames on these county roads. They're good county roads. What pays for that? Our taxes. But Jesus didn't stop with talking about taxes. He said, also, you give to God the things that are God's. Now, that, that when he said that, that totally silenced his enemies there, those spies that were sent in. But we might ask the question, well, just what belongs to God? Well, we have several scriptures that tell us what belongs to God. For example, Psalm 24.1, the heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and everything in it, you founded them. Now, that covers just about everything, doesn't it? The world is yours and everything in there. Paul said in Acts 17, 25, that God gives everyone life and breath and everything. And then he wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that God has not given you? The answer is nothing. God has given us everything, life and breath and everything. He owns the world and everything in it. So what belongs to God? That. So we need to give to God what belongs to God. Now you might say, well then, just what are we to give to God? I'm glad you asked, because I'm going to tell you. Now this isn't a sermon on giving, but in my did not pay me anything to say this. <laughs> about giving, but I want to talk about giving for a while. We have the greatest example of giving to God in the scriptures. So it started, we see the first instance of, of somebody giving to God a 10% in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 14 and verse 20. It says that Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. Now, Abram is, became Abraham, the father of our faith, and he gave to this guy named Melchizedek, who was Melchizedek. He was priest of God Most High. And at this point in his time, Abraham was so thankful for God for a deliverance in a situation, uh, a terrible situation he had been in. And so he, in thankfulness, gave the priest of God Most High, 10% of what he had collected. That was where they get the word tithe in the Old Testament. The word tithe simply means 10%. Now, in the New Testament, it doesn't talk much about tithing at all, but it does talk about giving generously and with a full heart. And in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul wrote, each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. Jesus was saying that our giving is actually giving back to God what he's already given to us. And he owns everything, as we've just discovered. 
Now, our giving is not like tithing that's forced upon us. We're forced to pay tithes, right? If you don't believe it, just stop paying, uh, not tithe, but your, your taxes uh, for a while. I had a friend that did that. He, he decided, he thought he found a law that said you don't have to pay uh, your yearly uh, taxes. <laughs> and it went okay for about three or four years. And one day he got a knock at the door and he says, uh, they said, you haven't been paying your taxes, you owe taxes, you owe penalties, you owe interest. And he said, well, you know, here's the real law. He said, that law didn't mean what it said, what you think it says. You owe taxes. He lost his house, he lost his car, he lost his job. So don't try it. <laughs> Pay your taxes. But God is not like that. Our giving to him is voluntary. Now I'm going to skip down. The last section of our passage that we're covering this morning is in chapter 20, the first four verses. And I want to skip down to that because it's also about giving. So let's look at Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. So he, it says, he looked up and he saw, that's talking about Jesus there in the temple. He saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put more than all of them. For these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. Now, there's lots that we can say about this, this passage, but because of time, we, I'm just going to focus on just the, the, the giving part. And I think Jesus was always on the alert to teach his disciples what it means, what life in the kingdom of God is like. And as he, looked, he was sitting there teaching, answering questions, he looked up and he could see the area where the people were giving their, their offerings. And he saw this woman giving. And he began to teach his, his disciples something. We all are guarded about sharing things about our personal finances, aren't we? If I came up to one of you this morning and I say, how much do you make? My, the response you might give me is, this is none of your business. <laughs> or if I ask you, <clears throat> how much do you give every week or every month? You might also say, that's none of your business. Why don't you leave me alone? It's kind of like, you know, we, we, we Americans... We're very guarded about our, our finances and other things. It's kind of like asking someone, how much do you weigh? You know, I don't want to tell people how much I weigh. You can probably tell by looking at me. These are confidential matters, but not in all cultures. Now, I lived for a while in South Korea, and I have a friend here who lived in South Korea. We were just talking about this yesterday. They ask questions that we would think they're very personal Sometimes they ask you, I'd, you'd meet someone, they'd say, how old are you? Yeah, well, some people in America, they don't like to say how old they are. You know, I don't mind, I'm, I'm 76. But, you know, but they don't stop there. Sometimes they say, how much do you make? 
And then the, sometimes they'll say, how much did you give? Did you know that in the, one of the churches I attended there, every Sunday in the bulletin, they handed out weekly bulletins, they, had, they published the people who had given by name the week before 10% of their, they gave their tithe. They, they were there listed by name. We wouldn't like that, would we? So there are some cultures, they don't mind sharing what we call, uh, you know, private information. But Jesus, guess what? Jesus knows. Jesus knows what we make. Jesus knows what we give. And what we learn from this passage is God is not impressed with how much we give out of our surplus. What he's concerned about is how much you have left over after you give. Because that, that poor woman who didn't know Jesus was watching her gave her last two coins. She then had to trust God to supply her needs. The Bible says in Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. So though, though she didn't know, that, that widow did not know that Jesus was watching her, <clears throat> maybe she found out later when she met God face to face and she was commended for her generosity. Recently, I, I, one of my, one of my uh, hobbies is uh, reading history books and listening to history podcasts and reading biographies of old dead people. I really enjoy doing that. <clears throat> Recently, I was listening to a podcast on uh, history, and it was about American slaves in the 1800s and their generosity. Now, I couldn't believe this when I first heard it, but I looked it up. It says, you think, you know, there was a church in Richmond, Virginia. It was the African-American Baptist Church, Richmond, Virginia. In 1847, this church was made up mostly of slaves. And in that year, there was a huge famine in Ireland. And uh, over a million people died of starvation. It's called the potato famine. And this group of slaves that in this church, they took up an offering and sent it to the people of Ireland. People they didn't even know. They didn't know where Ireland was. And yet they were willing to give out of their poverty to help people who were starving to death. I don't know about you, but when I read stories about a widow giving everything she has, when I read stories about slaves that are giving generosity, that ought to motivate me, it ought to motivate you to be willing to be somewhat a little more generous. Praise God, I saw your your uh, giving this year. Good on you guys. You're over the budget 100%. Keep it up. And maybe God wants you to give more than that. There's a, I bet you that all of Boone has not been reached for Jesus, right? <laughs> and it costs money to reach people. So let me encourage you to be like that widow. Be, be at least like those, those, those slaves. Be willing to give, trusting God for, your, your, for him to uh, 
provide for you. Now back in our text, where we left off from, after he answered that question, uh, that they thought they had him, it says in verse 26, they were not able to catch him in what he said in public, and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. So they gave up. Those Pharisees and, and the scribes, they said, we've tried our best, we've given our best shot, you know, we don't know what else to ask him. But there was another group. There was a group called Pharisees. They were also his in, or, uh, Sadducees. They were also his uh, enemies. And so they came forth with their question. Now, you had the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees. And you kind of, you know, who are these people, you know? And we know that Paul was a Pharisee, but Sadducees, who are they? Okay, they were also another religious organization within the Jews. And they were probably the top echelon. They were the rich Jews and that were a part of the, the Sadducees. Now, we'll learn here that they did not believe in the resurrection. In fact, there was a lot about their Hebrew scriptures they did not believe. And they didn't believe that God was concerned about what they did on a daily basis. But they were certainly concerned about what Jesus was doing. Now, how do you, how do you remember Sadducees, Pharisees, all that? Well, let me give you a little uh, thing to help me. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They were sad, you see. Okay? <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny. And, uh, but they helped me. They were Sadducees. Didn't believe. Why? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees, they, were, they believed in the resurrection. They were fair, you see. Okay, so let, let that be the one thing you remember today. Okay, so let's read, starting with verse 27 about the Sadducees. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came up and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that a man's brother has a wife and dies childless. His brother should take the wife and produce offspring for this brother. So this is what it says in the book of Deuteronomy to help perpetuate uh, the man's family line which was very important to them, this rule was made. So they, they continued. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Also the second and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will she, the woman, be? For all seven had married her. So here they came with a question. They thought, man, we are going to nail him with this. Here we're using a, a, a question from Scripture, a thing from a, a law, and we've, we've got him cornered. And they thought if they could trick him on this, it'd make him look foolish. And he, you know, and the, and the, the people would say, we don't want to follow this guy that's a fool. And so that was what they were trying to do. But see what Jesus said to them. Jesus told them, The children of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to take part of that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God since they are children of the resurrection. 
Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the, the living, because all are living to him. So, they, they threw this question out to him, and Jesus answered him. Now, let me tell you one more thing about the, the Sadducees. They were deathly afraid of what Jesus was going to do. And in John eleven forty eight, one of them said this, If we allow him to go on like this soon, everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. So they desperately wanted to, to do whatever they could to discredit Jesus. So they came up with this argument that's called reductio ad absurdum. Now, I took one class in logic when I was in college many, many years ago, and uh, we talked about this. Reductio ad absurdum, it's, a, it's an argument that essentially the argument is reduced to its absurdity. And they had a story that was absurd, right? Seven, seven men with one wife. But I've used this, reductio ad absurdum, when my children were small. Sometimes they would come to me and say, I want to do such and such. And what they wanted to do was I thought it was really not good. And so and I said, no, you can't do it. And they'd say, they'd say, but all my friends are doing it. And so then that's where I'd do reductio ad absurdum. I would say, well, if your friends are going to jump off a bridge, will you do that too? And I know, well, no. And then, yeah. But the reason why I used that, guess what, is my dad used it on me. And so sometimes that argument actually works, but it didn't work with Jesus. So, now in, as I said earlier, there are two other uh, parallel passages to this story. Uh, besides Luke, there's Matthew and Mark. And in Mark, Mark says, Jesus also said, besides what we already read, he said at the beginning, Jesus replied to the Sadducees, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? So when Jesus responded to them, he responded in two parts. First, he rebuked the Sadducees because they were ignorant of the scriptures. Now, they thought they knew the scriptures. Now, when they said scriptures, they were thinking only, uh, they only accepted the Torah, the first four books, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they, they said they wouldn't accept all the others. In the rest of the Old Testament, there are many examples of it talking about the resurrection. For example, in Isaiah 26, 19, it says, But those who die in the Lord will live. Their bodies will rise again. Those who sleep on the earth will rise up and sing for joy. For your life-giving light will fall like dew on your people in the place of the dead. Now, that's a pretty clear vision of resurrection, right? But they didn't accept that because they only said, we only accept the first few books of, of the Bible, the books that, that Moses read or wrote. And so Jesus answered them 
from the book of Exodus. And he talked about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he was saying that he showed them that that proves there's a resurrection. We'll get into that in a little bit. Second thing Jesus said, he challenged them, is that their ignorance of the power of God. They thought that if there was such a thing as a resurrection, it would just go on life as we have it here. So like in heaven, you know, you're married and given in marriage, but Jesus said, no, there's not going to be marriage in heaven because there's no more death. There's no need for procreation like they were thinking of. Marriage will be replaced by intimate fellowship with God, with a multitude of other, other believers. It is in this respect, he said, that resurrected believers will be like angels in heaven. Now, it doesn't say we become angels. It says we'll be like angels in certain ways. And, uh, and then he says, you know, one of the ways you're going to be like angels is you will be married. Now, if I were sitting there listening to that, I would say, what? Hey, what? Jesus, tell me more about heaven. I want to know more. I'm really curious about what's going to go on. But, you know, he wasn't there to explain all of heaven. He was just answering their question. Oh, man, I wish he had, he had gone on. Don't you talk about heaven? We do get a few glimpses from Scripture of what heaven's going to be like. And one of them is in 1 Corinthians 2.9. Now, I know 1 Corinthians 2.9 is mainly talking about our life on earth after we receive Christ. But it also can be applied to our life with God after we meet him face to face. It says, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. You know, there are many years I walked with Jesus on away from the cross, rejecting him. And uh, when God changed my life as a college student, it was like this. I began to see things I hadn't seen before in Scripture. I began to hear things that I was deaf to before about the love of Jesus. What I, my mind hadn't even thought about about God and my relationship with him and what, how he could use me and, and how he is working in the world. I hadn't conceived that. And the things that God had prepared for me in the last many decades since then, I, I couldn't even imagine. But it's been far greater, far more incredible than what I could have hoped for, dreamed about. And that, that's just a tip of the iceberg when we think about what is awaiting us as we face Jesus in heaven face to face. When Jesus gave this, his beautiful answer to those Pharisees, it says in verse 39, some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him anything. They didn't make him look foolish. In fact, they made him look wise. 
in the sight of people. When the groups had no more trick questions to ask him, they had no more traps for him, they couldn't think of anything else, he had a question for them. So the next verse says, or the next passage we're going to look at, he says, then he said to them, how can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can the Messiah be his son? Now, Jesus quotes from a psalm, Psalm 110.1, and it's used 13 times in the New Testament. In fact, it's the most quoted Old Testament verse that's repeated in the, the New Testament. And to understand exactly what Jesus was talking about, we need to look at it at the Old Testament. Psalm, actually look at Psalm 110.1. I think it's up there. Yeah, there it is. So you can say it's a little bit different, but we can understand better what Jesus was saying. So this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Now, there are two lords there, right? Two words that say Lord, but they're, they're printed differently, right? The first Lord is all capped letters. So what does that mean? Anytime you see that and you're looking at the Old Testament, it means what? It means this is the name of God. This is Yahweh. The Jews would not even often would not even pronounce that name. And so they, when they printed it, they didn't even print, they printed only the consonants in the, in the Hebrew uh, uh, copies of the Old Testament, they didn't put in the vowels. And so the nearest we can figure out today how that his name is pronounced is Yahweh. And so the, the translators of Bible into English, they say, okay, for us to understand that they're talking about the name of God, we're going to put Lord, we're going to put it in all caps. So there's, we could say, Yahweh said to my Lord, okay, the second Lord is just capital letters, a proper name. What is in the Hebrew, that word is Adonai. Adonai means my master, my owner. So literally, we could say this, Yahweh said to my master or my owner, set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls the Messiah master or owner. How can the Messiah be his son? Now, the Jews had taught that someday the, a descendant, a son, a descendant of David will be the Messiah. But the Messiah they were looking for was just another human like David with lots of weaknesses like David had. But Jesus is pointing out that's not the Messiah that David was talking about. David was talking about the owner, the master of the universe. He was talking about God being the Messiah. He asked them that question, and guess what? Nobody could answer him. They had no idea what he's talking about. Now, friends, we cover a lot of territory with these questions here, back and forth, people trying to trick Jesus. I would have been there with them, saying, yeah, Jesus, and I would have gone away puzzled about how could this guy have the, the wisdom to understand and answer questions the way he did. We can't trick him. So I have three takeaways I want us to take away from this passage of Scripture. The first is, 
first takeaway is we need to be faithful to obey Jesus' command to being givers. As Jesus said, give to God the things that are God's. And we've talked about what belongs to God that we have. We need to be givers. Give cheerfully in faith, trusting God like that widow, like those slaves. God will meet our needs. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 6, 38, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use will be the measure you'll get back. The second takeaway, recall often the hope of the resurrection. Jesus said he is the God of the, he is not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living because all are living in him. Paul said that we should talk about this often. In 1 Thessalonians 4.18, he said, encourage one another with these words. What words? It was words Paul was talking about, about the resurrection. We need to get together, and when we call sometimes in our conversation, we need to talk about the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection. That is our great hope. Friends, we do not live in heaven. This is not heaven. Boone, Iowa is not heaven. Lawrence, Kansas is not heaven. I don't know where, there is no heaven here on earth. This is the earth, a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. We have the hope of resurrection. Where eye has not seen, ear, and we haven't even imagined what is awaiting us. We need to talk about, remind each other of that often. And then the third takeaway, remind yourself often just who Jesus is. He is the one to whom all we have and all that we are belong to. King David called him my master, my owner. Jesus Christ said, just before he ascended back to heaven, all things have been granted to me, given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Friends, as you think about, we leave this church. We leave the doors of this church. We go out into a mission field. So the third takeaway is as since Jesus is your king, since Jesus is your Lord, he has commanded you, he's commanded me to make disciples starting right here in Boone where you live. Go out of these doors. Think about God, I want to make disciples for you. Show me how. And he will show you how you can be obedient to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your wisdom. Your word says that the treasures of, of wisdom, and all wisdom and all knowledge is hidden in you. Thank you that this morning we got to see a little of your wisdom, a little of your knowledge expressed in answering questions that were given to him to dumbfound him, to trick him, to trap him. And God, we just, uh, we thank you for who you are. God, may we remember this week to talk often about you. Maybe we remember in our conversations to speak of the hope of the resurrection. May we be faithful to be 
generous, cheerful givers of what you entrust to us. Thank you for everyone here. Bless them mightily in the days to come. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.